have been moving through the gospel according to John, focusing on encounters that people had with Jesus. And I'm not going to recap them all this time. We've been through a, uh, quite a few of them now. Um, but today we're going to look at just one more before we shift our focus um, to a new teaching topic, new teaching series, um, kind of focusing more on Lent. Uh, so today we're going to look or be looking at John chapter 9. But before we read, let's pray. God of light and life, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Grant us eyes to see and ears to hear your truth that we may grow in a deeper understanding and awareness of your love and grace for us. Grant that our minds may know and that our hearts would grow a deeper love for you. Lord, we know that we need your spirit, so we pray, guide us, teach us, convict us, and sanctify us as we seek to walk in the ways of Jesus. Unite us together as a church community in Christ that we would honor and glorify you and that we would grow together in our relationships with you And with one another. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, John chapter 9, beginning at verse 1. And he passed by, or as he passed by, sorry, he saw a blind man from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not this man, or it was not that this man sinned or his parents but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Okay, so already, let's just pause right there. So Jesus and his disciples, they're they're walking along, and they pass by a blind man. And the disciples saw that this man was blind, and they assumed that the reason for his blindness was only one of two options. What, What were those two options? One, that either he had sinned, or the other option in their minds, was that his parents had sinned. The disciples made that assumption. It's one of those two options in their minds. And, you know, probably many, maybe even most Jews at this time in history thought that suffering or conditions such as this was a result of sin. Well, that seems pretty strange to us, you know, in the 21st century in our modern medicine, modern world. You know, we can't think of anyone nowadays who, if they met a blind person, would assume that their blindness was a result of either their sin or of their parents' sin. That would honestly, that would feel just insensitive. It would feel insulting and, you know, pretty misguided in our opinions, right? But, you know, I was thinking about this, and we do sometimes make assumptions about others that are similar in nature. For example, we may see someone sleeping under an overpass or begging for money at an intersection and think to ourselves, you know, probably in our minds, maybe not out loud, I wonder what they did or failed to do to be in that position. Or we might wonder, well, were they raised in poverty? Was this a reflection of bad decisions that their parents made? If they, you know, just didn't make bad choices, if they didn't mess up in life, they wouldn't be in this position where they had to beg for money. In other words, it's because of their sin that they are suffering. But we know that this isn't fair. This isn't always the case by any means. And it wasn't the case for 
Jesus and his disciples then either with this blind man. Jesus' response to his disciples is interesting. In verse 3 it says that Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Jesus doesn't go into detail. He doesn't give an explanation to the past reasons or circumstances that led to him being blind. Because that's not what is as important to Jesus. What's important to Jesus is not what took place in the past or what took place to get that man to this point. What is important to Jesus is what God can do in him and through him. From that moment forward. Judging the man isn't going to bring God glory. Healing and transforming the man is going to bring God glory. So I think that's the first lesson for us this morning. Don't write people off because of their past or current circumstances. Look for how God can still work in them and through them to bring God glory today. You know, we talk about a gospel that has the power to affect real change in people's lives. It has the power to transform lives in Christ. And so we, as the church, ought to live that sort of eye and compassion for others. That no matter where they are in life, no matter what they're struggling with, no matter what they're facing, that we seek to love them, to support them, and to point them to Christ. Because we do believe in a God who heals hearts and saves souls. Now we know that not everyone's going to respond positively to the gospel, but that shouldn't be our concern. Our concern is that we follow the Lord. We are to be God's instruments. Jesus' hands and feet in a lost and broken world. And I think we've all heard those powerful stories of people who have really completely changed their life. You know, they were going down one road and they just had this moment where Christ took them by the hand, took them by the heart and changed their life. We need more stories like that. That means that we as the church need to be God's instruments to point others to Christ so that their lives would change. Instead of writing people off, let's focus on how God's glory may be displayed. All right, let's go back to our text. So who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Now, I'm going to, for time's sake here, I'm going to summarize kind of the next chunk of verses. So I'm not just going to read through them all. I'm going to summarize them best I can here. So this once blind man who now sees at this point, I mean, obviously, this is a pretty big event. It gets the attention of the neighbors in the area, and they're really having a hard time struggling to believe that this just happened. They're even questioning whether he was the same man who was blind. He's like, wait, 
was that the blind man that was there every day? We don't, was that really him? And so they go to this man and they asked him, you know, how did this happen? And so this man tells him, well, you know, that guy, that guy named Jesus, he, well, he spit on the ground and then he rubbed the mud in my eyes and told me to go wash in this pool and now I can see. I kind of wonder if they were a little bit skeptical at that point, like, right, you know. <laughs> because then they asked him, okay, well, where is he? And the man's like, well, I don't know. So they're like, right, okay, we're going to take you to the Pharisees. So they brought him to the Pharisees, and then the Pharisees asked him how it happened. And again, the man said, he put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. That's actually what the verse says. He, like, condenses it down. He's like, put mud on my eyes, I washed, and I see. That's what happened. And this sparks some debate among the Pharisees, and they aren't really buying the story, and they don't believe the man, so what do they do? Well, they call in his parents and question him. Is this your son? Was he born blind? If so, why does he see now? And so his parents respond, well, yeah, that's our son. He was born blind. He's been blind all his life. But we don't know how this happened or who opened his eyes. But he's old enough, just ask him. So they go back to the man. And this is where I'm going to pick up in verse 24. And so it says, So for the second time they called the man, who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He said, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. His answer to these Pharisees is not profoundly theological, but it's personal. This man's story was his testimony to the glory of God. It was how uh, Jesus changed his life in a very real and meaningful way. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. Now on the surface we see that this man's, you know, he's, kind of, he's talking about receiving his physical sight. But if you remember from earlier sermons in this series, and as we've kind of gone through John's gospel account... Jesus often uses physical things as illustrations for deeper spiritual realities. And so I think that this man's words also speak to a deeper spiritual reality. And even in this passage in, in chapter 9, Jesus re reiterates something that he said in the previous chapter. In verse 5, he says, I am the light of the world. Greater than receiving physical sight, this man received spiritual sight. This man who once lived in spiritual darkness had seen the light of Christ and it changed everything. Later in this chapter, he acknowledges Christ as Lord, the Son of Man, the Son of God. He was blind, but now he sees. Whenever I hear that verse, I can't help but think of John Newton. Some of you may be familiar with that name already, but if you're not, I can say that everyone here today has had some connection with him today because we just sang a song that he wrote, Amazing Grace, one of the most well-known songs, you know, in the Christian hymnal. Well, John Newton has an interesting life story, and it was one of complete transformation, he was born in London on July 24th, 1725. 
His mother was a godly woman, but she died when John was only six years old. John's father was not religious. He was a fairly hard man, and he didn't show John much affection. He was a, a ship captain by, by uh, profession. Well, young John Newton, after his mother passed at only six years old, he was only in school for two years, from ages eight to ten. And he ended up being very educated, but that to say that he was largely self-taught for the rest of his life. Well, at age 11, he began to sail on the ships with his father. He was put to work at age 11. And he did this for a number of years, and when he was 17 years old, he met a girl named Mary Catlett and fell head over heels in love with her. Uh, so he was 17, she was just 13 at the time. We're gonna, I'll mention more of that in a bit. Don't worry, it's a good story. But uh, uh, when John was 18, right after that, he was forced into naval service as a midshipman. And even one of John's close friends wrote of his experience at that time as a midshipman. He says that the, command, uh, the companions he met with here completed the ruin of his principles. And even John Newton himself, reflecting on his life at that time, wrote, I was capable of anything. I had not the least fear of God before my eyes. My love to Mary was now the only restraint I had left. So by his own account, as he lived his life you know, out on these ships, uh, he lived an immoral life as a, as a sailor, and things only spiraled downhill in this pattern of life. Uh, once he tried to, to desert his ship, but he was caught, he was arrested, he was publicly stripped and whipped and degraded from his office. And I wanted to read this quote from one of John Piper's books, uh, writing about John Newton. He says, when John was 20 years old, he was put off of his ship on some small islands just southeast of Sierra Leone, West Africa. For about a year and a half, he lived as a virtual slave in almost destitute circumstances. The wife of his master despised him and treated him cruelly. He wrote that even the African slaves would try to smuggle him food from their own slim rations. So his life had just taken one turn after another and from one obstacle and one struggle to the other. And at this point, he had basically hit rock bottom. He didn't really have much hope. He himself was a slave of his own circumstances. And then by chance, or maybe by providence... John was freed from his bondage by this ship that came in that saw smoke off one of the islands. And it turns out that the captain of that ship was one of John's uh, father's friends. And so he was able to negotiate and free John from that island and take him aboard his ship. But while on that voyage home on March 21st, 1748, I love when we have specific dates like that, the ship ran into a violent storm. And John at the time was sleeping below deck when a burst of seawater flooded his, his cabin and startled him awake. And, and just this storm was just wreaking chaos and havoc on the ship. And they feared that the ship was going to sink. And so he and others spent the whole night bailing water from the ship and frantically trying to pump water from the ship. And he prayed as he did this, Lord, have mercy on us. While not everyone on the ship lived through the storm, the storm did eventually subside. And John began to reflect on his life. 
most importantly, the state of his spirituality. He spent the rest of that voyage home reading scripture and praying. And when he stepped off that ship, he was a changed man for sure. But you might say he wasn't completely transformed just yet. Because for the next six years, he continued on the seas as a ship captain of a slave trading ship. Until in 1754, another circumstance changed his life. He had an epileptic seizure, and after that point, he never sailed again. Also during that time, when he was 24 years old now, he married his longtime love, Mary. And John and Mary were together for 40 years until her death in 1790. But after this, the, for the nine years that followed his seizure and the ending of his career as a ship captain, he found work as a surveyor of tides. I don't know exactly what a surveyor of tides does, but that's what he was doing. But he also began to immerse himself. Remember, he was self-taught. He began to immerse himself in, in biblical and theological study. He began to grow in his faith more and more. Like I said, it wasn't just a light bulb moment and he went from, you know, pagan to super religious. It was this process that took years and he grew in his faith. And then finally in 1764, 39 years of age, he accepted a call to be a pastor in the Church of England. And he had a long and fruitful ministry. He served uh, in two churches over 43 years until his death in 1806. As a pastor, he was remembered most by his love and care of others, of his, of his deep sense of humility, because he knew that he had been saved by grace. He's also known for many of his letters that he wrote to encourage others and encourage the church. He's remembered for his advocacy to abolish slavery. He had a change of heart from being someone who captained a ship of the slave trade to one working to abolish slavery. And of course, he's known for his hymn writing. He wrote this in his last will and testament. He said, I commit my soul to my gracious God and Savior, who mercifully spared and preserved me when I was an apostate, a blasphemer, and an infidel, and delivered me from my state of misery on the coast of Africa, into which my obstinate wickedness had plunged me, and who has been pleased to admit me though most unworthy, to preach his glorious gospel. In his own words, John Newton saw his life as a whole as a remarkable display of God's sovereign, efficacious grace. It's no wonder that he would sit down and pen the words, amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found was blind, but now I see. What's your story? What's your testimony to Christ? How has Jesus influenced and changed your life? Now, you and I, you know, we're not going to have the encounter with Jesus like the blind man did, with Jesus, you know, spitting on the ground, rubbing it in our eyes, and all of a sudden we can see. None of us will ever likely have that same dramatic experience that John Newton had on that ship off the coast of Ireland. Certainly there are some that might have a specific moment in which the light of Christ dawned in their life. But for others, for many even, we may not have that dramatic story to tell. 
You know, maybe you've even been raised in a church from birth. You haven't known anything else. But even in that, there's a story of God's amazing grace and his sovereign plan over your life. I do believe that if you are in Christ, you have a meaningful testimony of how God has graciously moved in your life. How can you connect the dots of your life to see how God has been orchestrating your lives to bring you to him? Continue to unfold that story. If you are hearing these words today, your story is not done. Your testimony is not complete. The book is not shut. Your work is not finished. The Apostle Paul proclaimed, For it is the God who said, the light, or Let light shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And hear Peter's words in 1 Peter 2, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people. In order that you may proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Don't forget what Jesus reminded his disciples or told his disciples about that blind man that, that he was blind for the works, that the works of God might be displayed in him. Friends, the works of God are to be displayed in and through us by how our lives are challenged and changed by God's grace, by how we live, by how we serve, by how we give, by how we love, by how we follow Jesus and submit our lives to him. So I'm going to end with this. Uh, verse from Ephesians, and then one last comment. Ephesians 5, 8 and 9 says, For once you were darkness, but now in the Lord you are light. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Amen. Let us pray.